Hey, can we give it up for Jordan and Amber? Wow. It takes a lot of courage. It takes a lot of courage to share that kind of story with a theater full of absolute strangers. And some of you guys know the pain that they're talking about. Some of you have been through that exact situation in your own life. Some of us haven't been through that, but we can sense kind of the emotion that they're carrying around. You can't help but listen to their story and just be amazed by how much grief and heartache they carry and how much joy they carry all at the same time. It is a powerful story, and I am so very glad that they let us share it with you this morning. Now, there's a lot that I admire about Jordan and Amber, a lot that I just think is wonderful about their story and their situation, but probably the thing that I think is most interesting about the the video that you just watched is how their trial did not push them further away from God, but life's hardest circumstance actually was the thing that brought them to God. You probably know that that's not typical, right? That's not usually how it works. We usually go through hard times and they drive us away from God. They tend to pull us away from our faith and our trust. We go through these hard times and we start asking questions like, where was God? Where was God when Amber miscarried? Why didn't he step in? Why didn't he prevent that from happening? Why didn't God stop my marriage from falling apart? Why didn't God stop me from getting sick? Where was God and why didn't he get involved? You might know people who have gone through those sorts of situations, a a chronic illness or an unexpected unemployment. Maybe they were betrayed by a friend or they had a terrible church experience and they started thinking, I just don't know that God was with me. And if God won't step in and prevent these bad situations from happening, then what's the point in following him at all? And that became the catalyst for them to leave. There are some of you that may be here this morning and you watch all of this, you're kind of skeptical of this whole Jesus thing. You're not even sure what you're doing at church this morning, but here you are anyway. And you're looking at this video and you're thinking, now, Jordan and Amber, you guys seem like very lovely people, okay? I'm sure you're wonderful, but I don't get it. I don't understand how God could allow you to go through something like that and then you become Christians? That's nuts, Why in the world would you decide to follow Jesus after he let something like that happen? If God wouldn't step in and prevent your miscarriage, then I can't possibly understand why you would ever choose to be his follower. Hey, if that question or any version of that question is rolling around in your mind this morning, can I tell you, you chose a very good Sunday to come to church because we are kicking off a new series called This Is My Story. And in this series, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be answering the question, why would anybody be a Christian in the 21st century? Why would any of us follow Jesus in 2019, considering all the suffering and all the problems and all the issues with the church and all that stuff? Why would anybody be a Christian? Now, what we're not going to do is we're not going to give you a series of arguments about God's existence. That's not what this series is designed to do. We are having one of those series around Easter. It's called Reasons to Believe. I'm really pumped about it. You guys are going to love it. But in this series, what we're doing is we are telling you each Sunday the stories of seven normal 
people from our congregation. Many of them are in the seats right now. We've got video testimonies from them. And the idea is I want you to see how faith plays out in normal people's lives, not in like pastors' lives, professional Christians' lives. I want you to see what faith looks like for an average person, for an average family, for a typical workplace environment, for a normal single person. What does faith look like? And these stories that we're gonna be telling you throughout this series are gonna show you exactly what that looks like. Then we're gonna combine the, uh, the, the stories that we're telling with this book from the Bible called First Peter. It's a letter that was written. And in this letter, we find a lot of the things that people like you go through, we find it addressed in this scripture. And so here's my hope. My hope is after you hear the stories of people and what Jesus has done for them, and then you hear these scriptures that kind of explain what they're experiencing, that A, if you're a Christian, your faith would be strengthened. You would leave each Sunday saying, now I understand a little bit more why I'm a Christian. I'm more confident in my faith than I ever was before. And if you're skeptical, if you're on the outside and you're looking in and you're like, I, I don't know why anybody would choose to follow Jesus, you would have a solid understanding of why we have chosen to follow Jesus in 2019. And I know this is crazy, you guys. I know this is crazy. But I think these stories and these words are so powerful that some of you will actually consider becoming followers of Jesus yourself. I know you're saying, yeah, forget that. I'm not, not me, somebody else, not me. Yeah, I bet even you will consider it. So let's dive in. We're gonna be in 1 Peter, okay? I'm gonna read you some verses. I want you to keep uh, Amber and Jordan's story in your mind because we're gonna reference it several times. And I want you to think about these verses in reference to what you've just heard on the screen. And so the Bible starts out here in 1 Peter chapter number one. The guy who writes it is gonna introduce himself. He's gonna talk about who it's addressed to and his reasons for writing this letter that eventually became a book in the Bible. So the scripture starts out and it says, this is a letter from Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And he says, I am writing to God's chosen people who are living as foreigners in the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And then he says this, may God give you more grace and more peace. So the guy who writes this is named Peter. You may be somewhat familiar with Peter. If you were here last week, we spent the whole message talking about Peter. Peter was an average fisherman. He was a very blue collar dude, living his life, just trying to make some money and uh, enjoy what years he had. And then one day Jesus walks up to him and says, Peter, I like you. I want you to become one of my followers. And the Bible tells us that Peter leaves behind his family business and he becomes one of Jesus' 12 original disciples. Now, Peter is kind of this outspoken, some would say obnoxious kind of guy. And because of that, he quickly becomes the leader of the 12 disciples. He's like, what, you don't wanna lead? I'll do it. And so he steps up and he becomes the leader. And we talked last week and you can read in the gospels about how Peter has these incredibly high points, right? He does some amazing things for Jesus. And then his life takes a sharp left-hand turn. And the scripture tells us how on the night that Jesus was betrayed, Peter gets scared that he's going to end up arrested and crucified and killed just like Jesus. And so, excuse me, when he has the opportunity, somebody says, hey, aren't you also one of his followers? He denies Christ three times. 
He says, no, not me, Uh uh-uh. I don't know that dude. I don't want anything to do with him. He gets what he deserves, not me, Uh -uh, uh-uh, uh-uh. Three times he denies Christ. And he's bitter and upset and he hates himself for what he's done and he thinks it's too late, it's all over. And so the Bible tells us in John 21 that Jesus, after he's crucified, buried, and resurrected, that he comes back to Peter. And he says, Peter, I'm not done with you. I still love you. I still want you. You're still my guy. And he restores Peter. So Peter then goes on to become the leader in the early church. He was probably the senior pastor of the very first church. In fact, the Bible tells us that he was the guest preacher on the day of Pentecost when 3,000 people gave their hearts to Christ in one single service. So Peter is a dude who's been with Jesus from the very beginning. He's gone through highs and lows. And now years in the future, he's writing a letter to some believers who are in these provinces that he mentions. Now you probably don't recognize any of the names of those provinces because they're not Canadian. They're from Turkey, modern day Turkey. This was the ancient Roman empire. They were Turkish or Middle Eastern believers that he's writing to. And he says the point of his letter, what he's going to try to communicate to them and what I think God wants to communicate to me and to you is that we should have more peace in our lives. Now, why would Peter write to them and say, guys, I wanna do something, I wanna tell you something that will give you more peace. Why did they need more peace? Well, it comes down to what was going on in the world during the time this letter was written. So this was written in AD 64. This was 30-ish years after Jesus had been crucified, all right? And in AD 64, there was a Roman emperor who came to power named Nero. Anybody heard of Nero before? Yeah, a few of you guys have. You might remember Nero from your world history class. Let me tell you, Nero was a grade A bad guy. He was not a good dude, okay? Let me tell you a few of the things I know about Nero. We know that Nero killed his mother, We know that Nero murdered his first wife. We're pretty certain, we can't prove it, but we're pretty certain that Nero murdered his second wife. He didn't have a third wife because ladies got wise. They're like, no, not me. I'm not marrying that guy. He was a bad, bad dude. There came a time right around this time, actually, about AD 62, 63, he decided that he wanted to build a giant palace for himself in the ancient city of Rome. And so in order to build this palace, he was gonna have to tear down some of the existing structures in this part of the city. And so he went to the Roman Senate and he said, here's my plan. I wanna build this beautiful palace, but I've gotta tear down these other structures. And the Roman Senate opposed him and said, no, you can't do it. Well, Nero wasn't gonna take no for an answer. So he devised a plan. He decided if I set fire to these buildings, well, then they'll be out of the way and the Senate will have to let me rebuild. So he set fire to his own city. The problem is the fire got out of hand. And so the fire burned for seven days straight. And at the end of the fire, 70% of the ancient city of Rome was either totally destroyed or almost totally destroyed. Can you imagine 70% of Calgary burning to the ground by next Sunday? Like it would be mind boggling, right? So he does this, the fire wipes out almost his entire city and people are like, I think Nero did that. And popular opinion starts to turn against him. He gets scared. So you know what he does? He blames this tiny minority in his population that were called Christians. And he says, guys, you know those Christians? Yeah, you got that one guy on your block, he's really weird, he's a Christian. And he wants to overthrow me as the emperor and make Jesus the new king. 
And because of Nero shifting the blame on Christians, there was a very severe persecution that broke out in the AD 60s uh, against Christians. And I'm about to tell you some things that are quite graphic, and and I'm not doing this just for like, you know, um, the sake of being graphic. I want you to understand what was going on at this time. So Nero, he had his soldiers arrest our brothers and sisters. And he dressed them up in freshly skinned animals, like bloody, raggedy animals. And he put these Christians in these skins in the middle of this amphitheater called the Circus Maximus. It was kind of like the precursor to the Colosseum. And then he released packs of wild dogs onto the floor. And there were thousands of Roman citizens who gathered together and watched these Christians be mauled to death in the same way that we go sit and watch the stamps play. He also took our spiritual ancestors. He arrested them. These are, I want you to understand, these are real people. They existed. They had families that they loved. He took our spiritual ancestors and he would dip them in hot wax. And he would tie them to poles and light them on fire as human candles for his garden parties. Like he and his friends would be eating appies and drinking their wine while Christians burned around them. We don't know this from the Bible. We know this from secular history. He was a bad, bad guy. Not only that, but his persecution became so effective and so far-reaching that his persecution led to the martyrdom, the murder of Peter, the guy who ends up writing this letter. Just a couple years after he writes it, Nero gets Peter. So in the middle of this kind of trial, tragedy, in the middle of these crazy circumstances in their world, Peter writes these words. He says in verse number six, so be truly glad. There is wonderful joy ahead. Even though you must endure many trials for a little while, these trials will show that your faith is genuine. Your faith is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold. What an unexpected thing for Peter to say to these Christians who were under this level of persecution that I just described to you. This is not at all what you would have expected Peter to write to them. You would expect Peter to write to these first century Christians, so be truly afraid because the next knock at your door could be the last one. Pray that God would protect you from those hard trials that are, that are befalling our brothers and sisters in other parts of the empire. Pray that your life is right. And God is happy and he spares you from what's going on in the world around you. That's what you would expect Peter to say. But he doesn't say that. He says something completely nutters. He says, so be truly glad because there is a wonderful joy that awaits you. He says, pray that you would find joy even in the middle of the harshest life circumstances you could ever 
imagine. He says, as Christians, we can find a joy, a peace, a comfort that exists independent of what's happening around us. In the middle of persecution, in the middle of a miscarriage, in the middle of a failing marriage, in the middle of a floundering business, in the middle of a mind full of doubts, in the middle of a heart full of depression, Jesus says there is joy, or Peter says anyway, there is joy that can be found in Jesus. It's almost like Peter is saying we should embrace trials. You know, we should look for them. They're good, right? Nobody gets excited when trials come. Nobody gets up in the morning. I don't get up in the morning and pray, God, give me a hard day today because I know hard days are good for me. (laughs) No. And yet Peter points out to these first century Christians, to me and to you, that we cannot overlook what trials produce in our life that there are things that God does through hard times that can only be accomplished in hard times. Peter, his point that he's making here is that trials reveal your faith. Trials reveal your faith. He said in verse number seven that these trials that you're going through, whether it's persecution or a miscarriage or doubts or any trial you can think of, he says these trials will show that your faith is genuine. Now, what does he mean by that? If there is a genuine type of faith, then by logic, there must also be a non-genuine type of faith, right? Maybe we could call it a counterfeit faith. So he says, the trials will show you whether your faith is the genuine article or it's a counterfeit fake. Well, what is a counterfeit faith? I think, and I think this is the point Peter is making, a counterfeit faith is a conditional faith. If a faith, if your faith says, I will follow God so long as he gives me what I want. I will follow Jesus as long as life goes my way. But the moment something bad happens, the moment I lose a pregnancy, the moment I get let go, the moment I get the diagnosis, then what's the point? If God's not gonna step in to protect me, then I don't get why I'm following anymore. Unfollow, boom, I'm walking away. That is a conditional faith. And Peter would say that's a counterfeit faith. He's warning us because hard times reveal whether or not our faith is genuine. Hard times reveal both the object and the strength of our faith. Listen, how did these first century Christians know that their faith was real? How do Jordan and Amber know today that their faith is genuine? How do you know if your faith is genuine? Listen, it is not because faith makes us feel good. And when hard days come, we're just like, oh, it's okay. It's not a big deal at all. No, we're Christians because we believe that even in the middle of our hardest circumstances, God is still for us that we are not forgotten or abandoned, that the trials that we are going through are not proof that God is angry and punishing us or that God has somehow overlooked us. We are Christians because we believe that even in the middle of life's hardest circumstances, God still loves us and he is still there with us. Listen, if you go through a minor trial, and it causes you to walk away from your faith, that tells you something about your faith, doesn't it? But if you can go through life's deepest, hardest, most difficult circumstances, and you can come out the other side still loving and trusting God, 
That proves that your faith really is genuine. Now, Peter knew this firsthand. The guy who wrote this letter, the apostle that we just talked about, Peter knew this firsthand. About 30 years before he wrote this letter, he had a conversation with Jesus. And in this conversation, Jesus says something to Peter that's important. He looks Peter in the eye and he says, Simon Peter, he says, Satan has desired to sift you like wheat. He says, listen, there is a force out there that wants to see what you're made of, wants to put you to the test to see if your faith is actually genuine. Peter, I mean, rather, Jesus looks Peter in the eyes and he says, but Peter, I have pleaded for you in prayer that your faith would not fail that this trial would not pull you away from me, but that you would come out the other side victorious. And then he goes on to say, and when you have repented, when you have made the mistake, when you've denied me three times, but you've been restored, I want you to go on and strengthen your brethren. Remember last week, we had this moment where Jesus says to Peter, do you love me three times? Then feed my sheep. When you've repented, strengthen your brothers. Now listen, In this moment, Peter goes from being this obnoxious, rash guy you can't count on and he becomes bold and focused and he becomes the leader in the early church. Hear me on this. World history was changed because of Peter and this transformation he went through. And the difference between old Peter and new Peter was that he went through a trial that both revealed and strengthened his faith. So Peter knows that faith is tested and strengthened. It is revealed by these hard times that we go through. This is why James, who was the brother of Jesus, he wrote in in a book of the Bible that he wrote, consider it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you go through every different kind of trial. Because when your faith is tested, your endurance is built. Joy, trials, they can exist alongside of one another in Jesus. Listen, the the, the truth is from a scriptural perspective, in every trial, God is doing something. In every hardship you go through, God is active. He promises that there is a purpose to your pain. Today's problems will produce tomorrow's peace. And so when you go through hard times, I don't want you to think to yourself, well, God must have forgotten about me or God must be really angry at me. Otherwise I wouldn't have lost my pregnancy or I wouldn't have lost my marriage or I wouldn't have lost my confidence in God. No, 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 no. When you go through these hard times, it is evidence that God is at work in your life and he is doing something in your soul. Look, I'm going to give you a truth. And this truth is so big. I think you should get out your phone, get ready to snap a picture of this because you're gonna need to refer to it later. Take a note, go out this week, get it tattooed on your arm, something, because this is huge. What we see in 1 Peter, we see in Jordan and Amber's life, what I found to be true is that a faith that is tested is a faith that can be trusted. A faith that is tested is a faith that can be trusted. You ever go to Ikea? 
I don't like Ikea very much, but you know, they've got cool stuff. So I go sometimes. You can ask my wife, when I go to Ikea, I spend a ridiculous amount of time watching the little mechanical robot that opens and closes drawers. I just sit there and watch it. If you've never been there, they show you that like, hey, look, our drawers can be open and closed hundreds of thousands of times and they will not break. Why? Because Ikea knows something that you and I forget. You can only trust what's been tested. The only way that you're ever gonna know if your faith is genuine, the only way you're ever gonna understand that you can count on Jesus, no matter what you're going through, is to be tested, to go through a trial. And the beauty is you'll come out the other side realizing that no matter what's going on, you can trust God. He is there for you. He is with you in the middle of all of it. Trials reveal your faith. Not only that, trials reinforce your faith. Trials reinforce your faith. They make it stronger. It's actually a good thing for you to go through certain trials because they reinforce your faith in God. Look at what uh, Peter goes on to say here in 1 Peter chapter number one, verse eight. He says, you love him, meaning Jesus. You love him even though you have never seen him. Though you do not see him now, you still trust him. And here are these words again. You rejoice with a glorious, inexpressible joy, says the reward for trusting him the salvation of your souls. Listen, God's promise to you is that in the middle of your worst day, it is, impo- it is possible to experience love and trust and joy that you cannot explain. Love and trust and joy, a peace, a confidence, a stability that you think there is no reason I should feel this way given what I'm going through. It is a joy that doesn't make sense. It is a joy that people don't understand. Your friends and family are gonna be like, how are you even getting through the day? And you're like, I don't know, it's been tough, but I just feel like God is with me. In fact, I'm, I'm more confident of, now, uh, of that now than ever. There is a joy unspeakable, full of glory that exists no matter what. Listen, if you're outside of the faith this morning and you're here and you're trying to figure out why your sister got religious all of a sudden, you're like, what the heck is going on with this this chick? I'm gonna go to church and figure it out for myself. Or if you are a Christian and you're here and you're like, I don't know where God is right now because it seems like he's forgotten me or it seems like he's punishing me based on my circumstances, you need to hear this. The good news of the Christian faith is not that God saves us from our trials. It is that God saves us from our sins. The good news of our faith is not that God will save you from every hard day. He won't, but rather he'll save you from the heartache of your sin, from being separated from him. This is a better gift than being given nothing but good days. We are not Christians because faith is some sort of magic shield that prevents us from having hard times and bad days. That is not at all what faith is. In fact, if you think that's what faith is for, then you need to pay very close attention to what Jesus said in John chapter number 16. Because in John 16, Jesus tells us point blank, in this world, you will experience many troubles. A lot of trials, you guys. Just trust me on this one. You're gonna go through a lot of stuff. But maybe this is what you need to tattoo on your arm. You can take heart because I have overcome the world. As Christians, we know that we are just as likely to encounter God in the middle of our trial of our tragedies and our trials as we are in our triumphs. 
And so when we go through hard times, we don't get bitter at God. Instead, we look for his love. We look for his guidance. We look for his provision in the middle of our hard times. This is the promise. Listen, if you come to Jesus thinking Jesus is going, this, this is what Amber said. She said it so beautifully. She said, I didn't get baptized because I knew deep down in my heart, the only reason I was getting baptized was a contract with God. God, if I get baptized, then you'll give me a baby, right? That's not how it works. He doesn't promise to take away every hard day. He promises to be with you in every hard day. Now, look, I know some of you guys, we're gonna wrap this up here. I know some of you guys are thinking, but Dan, you still haven't answered the issue. You still haven't addressed my main question. Why would God allow these trials at all? Why would he allow Jordan and Amber to go through that? Why would he allow the first century Christians to have to endure those atrocities? Why doesn't he intervene in order to stop that? And I want you to know that for thousands of years, Christians have always had the exact same answer. When somebody asks, why doesn't God intervene in our trials? We have always responded, he has. He has. In the person of Jesus, that's the whole point of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. Christians believe that God entered our world of pain and heartache and he experienced the very worst that humanity had to offer himself. Look at what Peter says here. 1 Peter chapter number three. Pay attention to these words here. He says this, Christ suffered. Do you see that? God suffered. Christ suffered for our sins once and for all time. He never sinned, but he died for sinners to bring us safely home to God. He suffered physical death, but he was raised to life in the spirit. Listen, although Jesus had done nothing wrong, he went through the worst trial imaginable and he came out victorious on the other side. God has inserted himself into all of our brokenness, all of our suffering, all of our evil, so that one day in the same way that Jesus conquered his death, he's gonna conquer all the evil in our world as well. The promise of the scripture is that God is aware of your suffering. He hasn't forgotten you. He's not punishing you. And one day he's gonna eliminate it completely. In the meantime, He's with you. He is for you. Listen, just because you and I live in the gap between when Jesus came the first time to experience suffering and the second coming when Jesus is gonna eliminate suffering doesn't give us the right to question God. That's like reading half a novel and then criticizing the author because he didn't resolve the plot. It's like, give it time, okay? It's coming. It will happen. You're just not there yet. I'm gonna end with this. It's a bold statement, but I believe it's 100% true. Suffering only makes sense in light of Jesus. The only way you can ever make any sort of sense out of suffering is to understand Jesus. So let me explain to you. Let's suppose that Jordan and Amber decided that they were gonna go on a little tour of all the major world views. And they were going to ask them, why did we go through this tragedy? Why did we lose our pregnancy? 
And I'll tell you that I believe Christianity offers the strongest of explanations. Because if they went to their Muslim friends and they said, what does Islam say? Why is it that we went through this? Islam says, listen, that's just the will of Allah and you should not question it. Yours is not to question why. You need to accept it and move on. I don't know, God's doing something you cannot understand. If they went to their Hindu friends, their Hindu friends would say to them, this is hard to hear, but you suffered this miscarriage because in your past life, you committed sins. And as you are reincarnated, you continue to deal with the karma of your former actions. If they went to their Buddhist friend, their Buddhist would say, I know this feels so real. I know the tears you cry feel very, very genuine, but your suffering is an illusion and you need to let go. You need to detach. You need to disassociate. The best thing you could do would be to learn to just forget it and move on. That's the central teaching of Buddhism. If they went to their humanist friends who say, nope, I'm a scientist. All I believe is what I can taste, touch, see, hear, and smell. If they went to them and say, why did we go through this? They would say, well, there's no reason. That's just the way life happens sometimes. And in truth, it's not right or wrong. It just is. And if you want a little bit of comfort in 10,000 years, we're all gonna be dead. Nobody's gonna remember it anyway. But Christianity says, Jordan and Amber, when you suffer, God suffers along with you. And although he hasn't eliminated your suffering today, he promises he will do it one day. In the meantime, he'll give you everything you need in the moment so that you can be truly glad And you can know that there is a wonderful joy ahead, joy unspeakable, full of glory that words cannot even express. Because a faith that is tested is a faith that can be trusted. And God is for you, no matter what you are going through.